I am so, so excited and nervous and literally all the emotions in the world right now to be up here. So thank you. You guys are awesome. So for those of you that don't know me, as Chris said, my name is Nikki Meekins. Um, I grew up in Minnesota, and Chris and I met in college where I was a chemistry major. So this is a little outside of my box. We didn't learn this in organic chemistry. Um, but I now work full-time at Johnson & Johnson as their lab manager here in Los Angeles. And a fun fact about me is I love biking and spinning, and I'm always down for a spin class. I also love watching cycling on TV, the Tour de France and the Olympics. I love that cycling is a team sport, and it's an individual sport, and there's strategy and athleticism, and it's just a perfect combination of all athletic things together. And I'd actually like to introduce today's topic through a story about cycling. So for years, like most Americans, my favorite cyclist was Lance Armstrong. And now by a show of hands, how many people had a Live Strong bracelet or maybe like some Live Strong gear? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people out there. So and if you don't know the story, Lance Armstrong, just a few years back, was totally busted. His whole team was busted for using performance-enhancing drugs, PEDs. Um, eventually he got caught, and after years of lying, he came clean and admitted everything on an Oprah Winfrey time prime, prime time special. Of course, right? Oprah gets all the good juice. Now, this scandal actually was, like, pretty impactful to me. I believed in Lance Armstrong. I bought the brand. I followed him. I cheered for him. And, like, I was disappointed. Um, but listen to what Aunt Lance Armstrong said in an interview about all of this. He said, I raced in a generation and on a team that was amongst 20 other teams that all did the same thing. Every single one of them did the same thing. I went to the American team in 92, and we were holding out, holding out, holding out, just assuming that, come on, there has to be a test for this. And we got to this moment where we were looking around, and we were like, oh, God, we don't have a choice. Or, well, we do have our choice. A choice is to go home. We could quit, retire. But if we want to stay and fight, and we're all walking around with knives because we were told we were going to a knife fight. And the next thing you know, everybody has guns. And we said, oh, poo-poo. That's not really what he said. <laughs> oh, poo-poo. I want to say it so bad, too. Like, I really want to say the real words, but I'm going to, like, not get kicked off the stage. So, oh, poo-poo. These boys are carrying guns. And so the spring of 95, we went to the gun store. I think that if everybody's honest with themselves, like really honest, I'm not that different than Lance Armstrong. We're not that different than Lance Armstrong. Everybody is motivated by something or somebody to go after what we want in life and do it at whatever cost. Now, I'm not saying that being competitive or winning at life is bad. What I'm saying is that Lance Armstrong didn't start out his career by saying, when I grow up, I want to cheat up bike races. It was a slow process that destroyed him. It was a cutting a little corner here, a little corner here, and then boom, he was a cheater. Many people wondered why Lance Armstrong came clean to Oprah when he did. And for me, his answer was pretty heartbreaking. He said he had to come clean when he found out his son was defending him at school. He had never asked him the truth. 
He always, his son always believed him. Can you imagine? So he had to sit his kids down and tell them the truth. He lied. He cheated. And he couldn't stomach them lying for him anymore. So going back to what I said a minute ago, I know Lance didn't grow up thinking, when I, when I grow up, I want to cheat at bike races. He was driven by something more. He wanted to be more than a poor kid from outside of Dallas. And he lost himself trying to win and trying to be the greatest. Over the past few weeks, Pac City has been doing a series called The Good Life, living the life that God created each of us to live. Each week, we've been looking at the person of Jesus to understand the good life is and how we can live it. So did you know that Jesus talked about winning and how to be the greatest? In fact, he shows us how to be the greatest. And as you might expect, it's a little different than we sometimes expect. So today, I want to suggest a different way about thinking about life. I've called today's talk, How to Be the Greatest. Will you pray with me? Oh, Jesus. I ask that you would continue to move in this room. I ask you would nudge each one of us during this message in personal ways that we would know more about you and our relationship with you would grow. Allow me to speak as you need and you intend. I pray that you would lower my anxiety. I pray that you would, I would trust you to speak to people. Just come, Jesus. Amen. So I'm, I am getting over a bit of a cold. So In Luke, in Luke 9, 46 through 48, we read, An argument started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to him, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Now let me give you a little context. A little background to what we just read. At the time of this story took place, the Jews were being occupied by Roman invaders. And they were all hoping that a Jewish Messiah would come and just kick out the bad guys. Now, Jesus' disciples thought that he would be the one to overthrow the Romans, return Israel back to its glory, and set up a new king. They thought that Jesus would be their new hero and king. So baked into the context of the story, the disciples are thinking like, wow, like this is really going to happen, guys. It's going to work. The crowds are getting bigger. Soon, Jesus will be king. And then when he becomes king, guys, like we're going to all be like really important because we helped him. The disciples saw themselves as getting in on the ground floor of Jesus's kingdom. Now, in Silicon Beach startup terms, They were the first 12 employees of a billion-dollar startup. They expected that they would be rewarded for their faithfulness, for their work, for their loyalty. So naturally, the disciples want to be recognized and important. They probably wanted to be rich, too. So it's not surprising that the disciples began to argue about who was the greatest. The competitiveness came out in them. The writer portrays the disciples as if they were competing for important, powerful roles, in Jesus' new kingdom. Now, in Los Angeles, we're no strangers to competition. Competition is everywhere, especially in our careers. 
We compete for the promotion. We compete for those limited raises. We can compete against other talent for particular roles. And we compete for clients in the industry. We compete for everything. And if you're a parent, you may notice that moms are like the most competitive. Like there's competition everywhere. You can't get away from it. But why do we compete? What drives us to achieve and win? For some, it's financial security is a very important reason. For others, it sometimes can be a deeper need to prove something to somebody or the world. And that's been true for me. I grew up in, like, a great home. My parents were super involved and supported me in sports and academics. But as I entered high school, my dad, who passed away shortly after college, struggled with depression and addiction. And it made things feel emotionally unstable. At times, my home felt unpredictable and out of control. My mom did, like, and many of you have met her. She's awesome. She did a great job helping us navigate through tough times as a family. But like most kids, I started to blame myself. Like, what did I do? I was not an easy kid, especially, especially during this time. And I... I believe the lie that part of my family falling apart was because, because of me. And I made a vow to myself that I would never let my life feel out of control or unpredictable again. Never. Now, instantly, like instantly, you guys, I entered college and I started to look at life differently. I started to push, compete for degrees, for jobs, for financial security. I always fell one step behind, behind where I should be. I started to angle and move so fast, I stopped seeing people. People were just something to get through, obstacles in my way. I was always competing. I needed to ensure that I was in control of my life. And it didn't matter what happened around me. So let me ask you a question. Do you know why you compete? Is something driving that competitive push? Let's take a look at what Jesus says about competitiveness. I want to reread the verses again. So in Luke, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you, all who is the greatest. Now, in Jesus' time, children were important, but they weren't like they are today. They weren't worshipped. Children now are worshipped. Children then, they were important, and they were loved, but they were just necessary. They needed to keep the family business going. So Jesus, when Jesus is saying the greatest among him would welcome children, what he is saying is in the kingdom of God, the most important thing you can do is serve others. Serve the least in the room. Jesus says, disciples, do you want to make, you want to be important in my new kingdom? Do, what make, do you want to make a dent in the universe? Great. This is easy. Serve somebody. 
And I love the disciples. The disciples are so like me. But Jesus, wait. I thought if you were going to be king, man, like, I thought we would be able to go to the royal ball and wear, like, the cool tuxes. We'd get the fancy invites to the red carpet parties. You know, Judas is in the back. Like, I just, you know, subscribe to Rent the Runway Unlimited. Like, what am I going to do? Like, no. Guys, what, what do you mean we have to serve everybody? Like, this isn't what I signed up for. And Jesus says back, here's how you know you're on the right track to be the greatest. When people don't know you exist because you're serving others so much. When you do the jobs that are beneath your reputation and your pay grade. When you are to serve so much that eventually the public perceives you as the least important person in the pecking order. That's when you know you're on the right track. Now, today, Jesus calls his, rad- his disciples to radically serve everybody, to take the low road, to serve people that other people forget to serve. Jesus speaks to the competitive nature of L.A. when he says, to be number one in my eyes, you have to make everyone else number one in yours. Jesus says, if you want to, to compete and be the best, you want to be competitive, here's how you do it. When you're at work, it means you're not quick to take credit. You give credit away. It means you look out for and serve the people on your team that nobody likes. We all know that person. It means we talk great about them behind their back. We lift them up. We support them. We help their relationships. When we're at home, it means we serve our spouse and our roommate by doing the difficult, hard task around the house. And if you're married, it means sometimes we have to promote the dreams and goals of our spouses, even if it means we put our own on the back burner for just a minute. And at church, it means we become radically generous with our money. We tithe. We give back. Because Jesus has been so generous to us. In the American economy, people are called to take the up escalator. Up, up, up. Keep going up. Reach the top. But in the Jesus economy, Christians are called to do the opposite. We are called to take the down escalator. Down, down, down. For the sake of others. Just to highlight my point a little more. The last 2,000 years, what is the central symbol of Christianity? The cross. Yes, the cross. Why? Why do committed Christians use a cross to symbolize their faith? Why the cross? We could use a yellow, jer- a yellow jersey like the Tour de France, a trophy, a fancy Olympic medal, some crown that can be seen from far away. No. But at the heart of Christianity, Jesus died on that cross, a torture device. He served humanity to break the power of sin and brokenness in our world for you and me. And so we look at that cross. It isn't an invitation to push people out of the way. It isn't permission to cheat our way to the top, even if other people are doing it. It's not a reminder that as long as we work harder than the next girl, we'll get what we deserve. No. When we look at the cross, we are looking at an invitation to come and die. To give our lives away to others, to serve the poor, to promote others, to give what we have to make the lives of others better. So how do we do that? First, if you want to serve like Jesus served, 
You can't do it until first you've been served by Jesus. If you want to serve like Jesus served, you can't do it until you've first been served by Jesus. You know what I mean? Christianity believes that Jesus served us by dying on a cross to take the issue of brokenness in our world. That when he came back to life, we believe that he proved that he had the power to overcome all broken things we experience in this world. We humans need to experience love and compassion before we're able to share that love and compassion with others. So let me share a story, an illustration about what I mean. So many of you know I love the book Les Mis by Victor Hugo. I've seen it on Broadway, and of course, many of you have maybe seen the recent big screen production starring the girl from The Princess Diaries. But I think it's so hilarious. <laughs> like, how do you go from The Princess Diaries to, like, singing live on Les Mis? I love it. Anne Hathaway, if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> I just want to say I'm, like, really in love with you. You're great. I want to invite you over for dinner. But anyways... In the story, Jean Valjean is a bitter, bitter ex-convict. And he has just left jail. So he's traveling back to the city, and he runs into this bishop. And this bishop shows him just tremendous grace and mercy. He invites him into his home. And the nuns, of course, are a little like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, they see the red flags. But the bishop is cool. He's calm. He invites him in for a meal, a place to stay. He offers him such beautiful grace. And then Jean Valjean wakes up early in the morning. He goes down to the kitchen, and he steals all the silverware. He steals all the silver, the fancy, beautiful silver. And he takes it off. He takes off with it. But he doesn't get too far. The police catch him. They bring him back under arrest to the bishop's home. When the police ask if the, bi- the bishop, if Jean Valjean stole his silver, the bishop does something amazing. In this day and age, all the bishop had to do is say, yep, that's my silver, that's who took it. Jean Valjean would be in prison for the rest of his life, no questions asked. But in a strange turn of events, the bishop doesn't tell on Jean Valjean. He doesn't even hint that it was his silver. Instead, in an act of radical grace, the bishop lies to the police and he covers for Jean Valjean. And he says that he gave that silver to Jean Valjean. Now, of course, the police don't believe him. Like, this is crazy. But eventually, he convinces the police and the police leave. And then there stands the bishop and Jean Valjean across from each other. The story reads that And this act of mercy shook Jean Valjean to the core. Nobody had ever treated him like this, with compassion and kindness. And as a result of this kindness, Jean Valjean's life is radically changed forever. He chose that day to no longer see himself as a criminal, a second-class loser, but as somebody who is loved, somebody was worth saving. John, Cho- John Valjean chose to let grace have his way with him. He gave up his self-pity and bitterness, 
and started to live a life of graciousness towards others. He changed at the root of his being. The bishop saved Jean Valjean's life. It's a beautiful story. I only told you a little tiny bit of it, so you should read the book or see the whole movie for the whole thing. But it's beautiful. You see, friend, the power of Jesus is that it frees us. It gives us hope to live a radically different life. And since we have been loved by Jesus, we are free and empowered to love others. And when we accept this love and power that comes from Jesus, we are supernaturally and spiritually infused with power, strength, and perseverance. To, that we, need, we have everything we need to serve, to serve the homeless person, to serve the poor, to find ways to help improve the lives of single mothers to pull together our hard-earned money to build wells in developing countries. We are able to love because we have been loved. Now, in closing, I do want to circle back and tell you a story and kind of tell you how my story ended. At the beginning, I, I told you about how I shared of my family took a hard turn, and I began to believe the lie that the reason my family was falling apart was because, because of me. And I made a vow to myself that I would never let my life feel out of control or predictable again. Which resulted in me really just pulling in and controlling my life in a, in a vicious cycle. And it didn't matter what happened around me, like I was in control. But let me tell you the rest of that story. I've been walking and talking with Jesus since college. But just a couple years ago... After my daughter, Marin was born, we moved to Santa Monica. And even though I was competitive, I was winning. In some ways, I was at the top of my game. I was doing well at work. I was getting promotions. My future seemed bright. Things seemed unclear. And also, being a mother kind of like stirred up some things in me that I, I wasn't expecting. I had to shove them deep. And I, I literally, you guys, I, lot, I, I said to Jesus, I need help. I'm pushing. I'm trying. But I'm not happy. I'm falling behind where I think I should be. And, I, and I'm losing control. I think I actually like might be losing control. And Jesus, with just a whisper, said, You know, it wasn't your fault. You know, you couldn't have changed what happened. Do you believe me? I believed him. I believed him. I know it was true. Sorry. <laughs> uh, the power of Jesus broke the power of the vow that I had made. I knew, in a way like Jean Valjean, that I was free. That I was free from the lie that I caused my dad's pain. And for the first time, for the first time, I was free from having to control my life in a way of protecting myself. It freed me from having a, to compete and to push for control. Now, the funny thing is, like, those of you who know me, you're like, well, I don't know about this. I'm still really competitive. But I no longer am motivated by p my pain and fear. I, I can compete and win, and I can do it with compassion for people around me because of the words and compassion that Jesus gave to me. 
So I will still take you down in a board game. And I will do it with a smile on my face and know that that's what I'm doing. But by the way, if you're interested in experiencing what I'm talking about, this is available to you. I processed a lot of this while I was taking a course called Faith Walking, which we will be hosting here at Pack City in March. Yes. And it really, it taught me how to identify the lies I believed about myself and how to, and the vows I had made. And it clearly taught me how to position myself in front of Jesus to heal those things. And he can help you too. So I also want to take, we have a special person here today. I want to take a minute and thank Cindy Garris. She was my faith walking coach. She's here from Denver. And like, yay. No, seriously. <laughs> like, thank you for helping me hear God's voice. And for helping me position myself to hear what God had for my life. I like, am eternally thankful to you. So thank you. So I want to take a minute. <laughs> so we actually, you know what? Let's stand. Let's end this. Let's get this over. 